0: Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I've been gone the last couple of weeks uh, uh, on vacation, and uh, Scott Stewart's been here in my uh, absence, done a great job, I'm sure. Um, Before that, for the last, well, I'm going to guess eight weeks prior to that, we were teaching on the authority, the believer's authority. And uh, I kind of thought that I would be finished with the subject when I left town but apparently I'm not so uh, so we're going to pick up with some things that we've uh, talked about before and go a little bit further Genesis chapter 1 it tells us after God created the heavens and the earth he made the earth and the fullness thereof and it says in verse 26 he comes down to his plan for man the creation of man and he said in God, and it says in God said let us make man in our image after our likeness Now, we've talked about that before. Image and likeness means that God created man an exact copy of himself. Now, that does not mean that he made man to have the same creative ability as himself. It doesn't say that man was equal to God in power. But he made man in his own image after his own likeness. He made him as close to himself as he possibly could. You remember in Psalm 8, the angels at this event, the creation of man, One of the angels said, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou hast visited him? In other words, the angels were astonished. They said, God, you're going to do what? You're going to make man in your own image and after your likeness? You're going to make him just like yourself? They realized that that would mean that man was made a a higher class of being than the angels themselves. So there was great questions among the angels. About God's plan. So God said let us make man in our own image just like ourselves and let them have dominion over the earth. Now I want you to notice that God made man for one purpose. He made him in his own class in his own image as much like himself as as was possible and with God all things are possible so we'd have to say man was an exact copy of God himself. And he made him for one purpose, and that was for him to have dominion over the earth. He made man so that man could rule over this earth he created. Let man have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, again, just like himself. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. God had to say something several times to establish the reality of what he did and what his purpose is. He's telling us over and over again, I made you like me. And he made him for the purpose of having dominion over the earth and over all the works of his hands. Now, it says in uh, Genesis chapter 2, the commandment that God gave man, and remember that the earth was created just as much like heaven as is as, uh, as possible, in that it was a perfect system, everything was producing, there was no tree that produced fruit or uh, that failed to produce fruit, there was no tree that produced rotten fruit, there was no worm to eat into any apples or any of that kind of stuff, no thorns, no briars, no thistles, no weeds, no nothing, it was perfect in every way that it was created. And it was perfect because God created it. It was the work of his hands, just like man was the work of his hands. Man was created perfect, just like the earth was. So God tells man, you're in charge of this perfect environment. He gave him one command. He said that you could eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, but there's one fruit that you shouldn't touch. That's in chapter 2. Verse 17, it says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Amplified Bible says uh, blessing and calamity. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, put these scriptures together. Notice in verse, chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let him have dominion over the works of our hands and over all the earth. Let him have dominion. Now in chapter 2 and verse 17, he says, Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat thereof you shall surely die. What's the penalty for disobedience to God's command? Spiritual death. But notice what he did not say. He didn't say, In the day you eat thereof you'll lose your dominion. He did not say, In the day you eat thereof you'll lose your authority. Folks, I think we've made some assumptions that are wrong. I know I have in times past and it's really only been in, in, well, somewhat recent times, not immediately, but in somewhat recent times, it's dawned on me and it's occurred to me that just because the Bible says in Second Corinthians four four that Satan is the God of this world, that caused me to think that man lost his authority when he fell. But that's not what the Bible says. It says he died spiritually. In the day that you eat thereof, you'll die. Well, he can't be talking about physical death because Adam didn't die for 930 years after this point in time. Well, what death is he talking about? He's got to be talking about spiritual death. That's the only other kind of death there is. So he's saying you will die spiritually or another way to say that to define our terms Spiritual death is separation from God. You will lose the life of God as the source of your strength, the source of your authority, and the source of your existence here on the earth. Didn't mean he stopped existing. He's just now existing in a different condition. Now he's spiritually dead. That light that was on the inside of his spirit that God had breathed into by which he became a living soul, the King James says. Now that spirit on the inside of him is gone. Well, God's locked out. God made man to have authority over the works of his hands here on the earth. But now God is separated. He no longer has a relationship with his creation, the finest work of his creation. So he has to start making covenants with mankind to gain access back into the earth. Now here's where religion has led us astray, because religion takes certain scriptures. For example, the Bible says, with God, all things are possible. The Bible talks about God being omnipotent, all-powerful, and so forth. And so, so many times it seems that Christians have gotten the idea that since God is all-powerful, the Bible says, the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. So God can just do anything he wants to at any time well if that's true then when did God take authority back authority over the earth back from man and since his plan in the beginning in Genesis one twenty six, reveals that his plan in the beginning was for man to have authority where does the Bible tell us that that plan changed rather the Bible tells us that God can't change So if it was his original intent for man to have authority and dominion over the earth, it has to be his present-day intent, does it not? But see, we in the church world, and I'm talking about the product of religion, not Bible doctrine, but we in the church world have gotten the idea that God is all-powerful and God can just do anything he wants to. Well, if he does, he's violating his word because man is the one that has authority here. And God can only operate in the earth for the benefit of mankind if man asks him. John Wesley said, it seems that God can do nothing in the earth unless a man asks him. He went on to say, why that is, we don't know. Well, John didn't know, but we do. The reason is God gave man authority on the earth. He's never rescinded that authority. He's never rescinded that instruction That intent, the delegation of that dominion to man, he's never changed that. Well, when God starts making covenants, he makes a covenant with Adam. It's a temporary covenant. He makes a covenant with Noah, and that's a temporary covenant. But then he makes a covenant with Abraham, and through a series of events, it becomes an everlasting covenant. It becomes one that's ratified and is identified as an everlasting covenant. It gives God the opportunity... To operate on Abraham and his children or his seeds behalf. So now God has the chance once again. To do in the earth for mankind what he wants to do. Based on obedience to the law of Moses. Now Jesus comes along many years later Jesus comes along. Bible tells us of Jesus. That he was born of a virgin. He explains to us, and if you were with us, you may remember we looked at John chapter 10 to explain this. Jesus said, he that comes by the door into the sheepfold, the sheepfold he's talking about is the earth. The Bible says we're the sheep of his pasture. So he said, he that comes by the door into the sheepfold is the shepherd, but he that comes another way, climbs up another way is a thief and a robber. Now he's contrasting himself and Satan as far as his entry and his legal authority in the earth. Jesus had legal authority in the earth because he was born of a woman. That gave him the authority as a human being that God originally gave to mankind through Adam. But he says that Satan came illegally. Now, that's an interesting thing to consider. How did Satan come? Well, we know that Satan wasn't born into the earth, so he had no authority of his own. And if you think about what, uh, what uh, Satan did in the Garden of Eden to get Adam, to, Adam and Eve to fall, we learn a lot about how he operates. Satan, through deception in Eve's case and reasoning in Adam's case, influenced them to misuse their authority. The fall of man came about as a result of the misuse of man's authority. Now, what I want you to see is this. Satan had no power to make it happen. He had to take upon himself some kind of, some sort of physical form, the form of the serpent or whatever it was. I'm not convinced it was a snake, but nevertheless, whatever it was, he had to have some kind of physical form in order to interact That's why evil spirits are looking to embody persons or animals so that they can gain expression into the earth. So Satan didn't have the power to do anything or make anything happen on his own. He had to convince man to misuse his authority, to use his authority or use his will to disobey God. And that brought corruption under the kingdom of God here on the earth. Now the whole system is corrupted. But when Jesus comes along, he has authority as a man, but he doesn't do anything to benefit mankind until he's 30 years of age and anointed by the Holy Ghost in the Jordan River when John baptizes him. You know the story about how the Bible says that there was a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Holy Ghost descends from heaven in bodily form as a dove, landed on him and stayed And at that point, Jesus began to do healings and miracles. Now, let me ask you a question. If Jesus is operating on the earth as the son of God, a part of the Godhead, why would he need to be anointed? And I'll go a step further. If he's operating in his divine heavenly power, the same power he had before he came to the earth as the son of God, who could anoint him? Who can anoint God? See, folks, he laid aside his heavenly power and glory when he came to the earth. The reason he came to the earth, the reason that was so important is so that he could legally have authority to operate here. Satan is an illegal alien. He's a trespasser. He was in the beginning and he is now. Now, folks, the reason that uh, I keep going over some of these things is because these are important points when it comes to the exercise of authority. Now, when Jesus comes along, he starts doing some interesting things. Turn with me over to the... the, uh, We'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We'll look at the last couple of verses of chapter 7 first. Matthew chapter 7 in verse... uh, Let me get there. It's the last two verses. Verses 28 and 29. Jesus, after having preached a sermon the sermon on the mount it says in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 7 and it came to pass when jesus had ended these sayings the people were astonished at his doctrine now I want you to notice something folks the church world has has told us religion has told us that jesus healed the sick and did miracles to prove that he was the son of god if that's true then the people are going to be astonished at him no matter where no matter where he is and wherever he goes but notice that is not what the scripture says it does not say that they were astonished at him. It says they were astonished at his teaching. Well, maybe that just means that he was a good teacher. I'm sure he was. You couldn't get any better than Jesus' teaching. But notice that it goes on to describe why they were astonished. It says the people were astonished at his doctrine or at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, if you're reading along with me in the King James, please notice in verse 29, the word one, O-N-E. You see that's in italics? What that means when you find a word in italics in the King James translation or the King James Bible, that means the translators put a word in there. They added a word to help us understand what was being said. Now, in many cases, they did us a great service, but not all cases, not in every case. This is one time where it didn't help us. It keeps us from seeing what was going on. Now since they added it. And it's not in the original text. Let's take it out. Therefore it should read in the English. For he taught them. As having authority. And not as the scribes. Now if you look up the word. The two words. The Greek words translated as and having. The word as means how. Or the manner of. Or the manner to. The word having means to hold. So if we interject or substitute those meanings, look them up for yourself. Don't take my word for it. You can find it in any concordance. If we use those meanings in the translation, it would translate like this For he taught them how to hold authority and not as scribes, or he taught them the manner to hold authority. And not as the scribes. Now, folks, if that's a correct translation, and if the, if the Greek language means anything from which it was translated, then it is, then that explains why they were astonished at his doctrine and not, as, not just at him. He taught them how to hold authority. He's teaching, Jesus is teaching, that man has authority on the earth. We don't think of Jesus teaching something like that when he was here in his earthly ministry, do we? We think of him teaching like he did in Capernaum, Luke chapter 4, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to heal the sick and so forth. We think of Jesus proclaiming who he is as part of his doctrine. But if Matthew knew what he was talking about, and Matthew was an eyewitness to these things, he said, Jesus taught that man held authority here on the earth. Well, that would be true. God gave man authority on the earth and we don't have any record that he ever took it back. So that would be true, wouldn't it? So he taught them, he taught mankind, he taught his crowds that man had authority. He taught them how to hold authority. Now, what does that mean? He has to be teaching them that Satan is a trespasser, that he has no power. Now, think of the people that he's teaching this to. People would be in the same situations as they are today. Many people would be in financial hardship. Many people would be facing sickness and disease. Many people would be facing family situations or high tax bills from the Roman government. All the things that you would expect to happen in a normal life with a group of people, that's who Jesus is telling you have authority. He's not teaching that he has authority. He's teaching that man has authority. That's one of the reasons why the Bible says over and over again, 60 out of 65 times, as a matter of fact, Jesus identifies himself as the son of man, not the son of God. Five times he identifies himself as the son of God, and three of those are in the same setting. But 60 times, Jesus identifies himself as the son of man. You may be interested to know that the Bible says that when Jesus comes back in clouds of glory, it's, he said of himself, the day will come when you'll see the Son of Man return with great power in clouds of glory. See, even now at the right hand of the Father, Jesus identifies with man, not as the Son of God. Now, don't get twisted up about this. I'm not saying Jesus wasn't the Son of God. Of course, he was. Well, since he was the son of God, why did he identify with the son of man or identify himself as the son of man so often? Because he's sent for a specific purpose and that specific purpose includes exercising authority and dominion here in the earth. And man was the one that was given that that dominion. Now, we're in Matthew chapter 8, or right next to it anyway. So I want you to see something about the centurion. Let's start reading in verse... uh, Well, let's start in verse five, I guess. It says Now when Jesus was entered into Capernaum there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Now a centurion was a Roman captain, he was the captain of a, of a, a division of a hundred men. And he said, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, "'Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, "'Go,' and he goes, and to another, "'Come,' and he comes. And to my servant, "'Do this,' and he does it.' When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, "'Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel.'" The implication is Jesus would expect to find this faith among the children of Abraham. But he didn't. But he finds it in this centurion. And I say unto you, he goes on, that many shall come from the east and west. He's talking about the Gentiles. And shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, meaning the Jews, shall be cast out into outer darkness. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And a servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Now here's my question. What is it about this centurion's understanding? He, he says what it is. He says, I'm a man under authority. Speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority. I've got soldiers unto me. And you would also understand that he has somebody over him. That he answers to. He said, I understand how authority works, so just speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. That's what Jesus marvels at. So we can conclude from what the Bible tells us that this man, speaking of the centurion, this centurion's understanding of authority was what Jesus called great faith. But the question is this how did he gain this understanding of authority? He didn't get it from reading the law of Moses. So how did he get it? And what was it? What were the characteristics? What were the elements of his understanding of authority? That caused Jesus to marvel at his faith. See I'm of the opinion. That if we can have the same or even greater understanding of authority. And emulate this same, these same characteristics or elements. That the centurion showed forth, then we can have Jesus marveling at our faith just like he marveled at his. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it wouldn't be something that was unique or special to the centurion that we couldn't emulate. That wouldn't make sense, would it? Well, what was it about this guy? Now, I think it's Luke's account of this says that the centurion had done great things for the, for the Jews in Capernaum. He had helped build them a synagogue and that was one of the reasons why Jesus was so quick to respond to his need. Remember part of the Old Testament uh, blessing that God gave Abraham is I'll bless those that bless you. So if he's been a blessing, he meaning the centurion, if he's been a blessing to the Jews there in Capernaum, then Jesus seems to be willing and ready to repay his goodness and his kind deeds toward them. But that's when the centurion speaks up and says, there's no need to come to my house. I understand about authority, so speak the word only. What is it about the centurion's understanding of authority that caused him to be in the position he's in? Well, he's in the military, we know that. But what is it about being in the military? It's the only thing he identifies as his understanding, or the source of his understanding of authority. What is it about being in the military that would cause him to have a greater understanding of authority than anybody else? Now, folks, I'm going to jump out on a limp here. I'm going to suggest some things for you to consider. I'm not going to tell you this is the way it is no matter what. But I'm going to throw some things out there for you to consider. I think I've mentioned earlier on in this series, maybe several times, that a lot of these things that we're talking about that I feel led to talk about are more thoughts about authority than anything else that I'm trusting the Holy Ghost to put together for me. These are things that I'm meditating on and trying to gain understanding about too. So I'm going to jump out on a limb here. I've never served in the military. It's one of the regrets that I have in my past. But I think I know enough about it from hearing about it to understand that you do what you're told in the military or else. Do you not? Well, then, is there implied? I believe there is. But you decide for yourself. Is there implied in the centurion's description of his understanding of authority that when he tells his servants to do something, they do it or else? Do you see that or is that just me? Now, what's the strength of the or else? See, here's what I've come to conclude, and that is, and I'm not just talking about authority in general, I'm talking specifically about authority over the devil. I believe one reason why the authority that we attempt to exercise over the devil has mixed success is because we're not convinced of the the power of the or else. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'll spend as, lot of, as long a time on this as I need to to make sure you understand what I'm saying here. If Jesus has given authority to the church, and he has, he said, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. That's John fourteen twelve. you couldn't do the same works Jesus did unless he authorized you to do it unless we've been given authority that's impossible for us to do the same works as Jesus now how did Jesus do the works he was the son of man with legal authority here on the earth that was anointed of God to do those works and now he's authorizing the church and it's not just in John 14 he said in Matthew chapter I'm sorry Mark chapter 16 Verse 15, he said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believeth in his baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. First thing he says is, They'll cast out devils. They'll exercise authority over the devil. He has to be authorizing the church. He continues and says, lay hands on the sick and they shall recover he has to be giving authority to the church to operate in his name in other words he's delivering the same authority to the church to do the same works of healings and miracles and blessings that he was anointed and authorized to do when he was here on the earth that has to be true folks that has to be true well, then why is our authority over the devil hit and miss? Now, I hope I'm not talking to you. I hope that every time you open your mouth to speak to the enemy, he takes off running. But it seems to me that so much of the church world has an understanding, a mental understanding, that the church has been authorized to use the name of Jesus to break the power of the devil. But our results are limited. limited i don't believe god intended for our results to be limited in any way whatsoever and so if they are limited it can't be on the problem can't be on god's end so that means there is a problem well could it be that matthew 8 the story of the centurion is giving us a hint to what the problem might be might it be a lack of understanding of authority I believe it is at least in part because there are things that the Lord seems to be dealing with me about that I find myself guilty of, of certain of these things and I'm ashamed to admit it but I'm willing to tell you because I'm sure you're in the same place I am and these and, and what I want to share with you about in the next few minutes is not a conscious thought. Because I don't consciously think God and the devil are on equal par. I don't consciously think that the devil and God have equal ability. I'm convinced that God has much greater power than the devil. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure just exactly how much power the devil even has. But remember how the devil operated against Adam and Eve to gain control or maybe a better way to say it is to corrupt God's system here on the earth. He influenced man to misuse his authority. He influenced man through deception and reasoning to misuse his authority. Is it possible that we're misusing our authority because of deception and reasonings? I believe it is. I believe it is. One of the things that the Bible tells us, turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. And I'm out of time. I'll have to pick this up next time. Now I'll start it at least. I won't be able to finish it, but I'll start it at least. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, the one man meaning Adam, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. It's talking about when Adam and Eve fell through the influence of Satan to misuse their authority. The consequence of their disobedience to God's command came upon them. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. For that all, King James says all have sinned is literally for all sinned. In other words, when Adam sinned, you sinned too. Adam is the federal head, the father of mankind. When he sinned, you sinned in him. Now there's some great illustrations and, and pictures, word pictures, that you can teach from and teach about concerning in him. You were in Adam because we all can trace our heritage back to Adam in the Garden of Eden in some way, some form, one way or another. So when you fell or when Adam fell, when Adam sinned, you sinned in him. Now you weren't there to commit the sin, but you sinned in him. You sinned in him. That's what it's telling us. Death passed upon all men for all sinned. All men sinned when Adam sinned. But now look down with me to verse seventeen. Here's the companion scripture to verse twelve. For if by one man's offense, talking about Adam's sin, for if, literally, since by one man's offense, death, meaning spiritual death, reigned by the one man Adam, much more. I've told you this before, but I I need to tell you again. When uh, Paul uses the phrase much more, and he uses it three or four times throughout the scripture, it literally from the Greek means it's so far beyond it shouldn't be compared. So when he says much more he's saying in infinitely greater measure those that receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. King James, or The Amplified says shall reign as kings in this life by one Jesus Christ. Now folks if the language means anything and you have to decide for yourself whether it does. But if the language means anything Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost. And remember, these are the words of God to us through Paul. This isn't just Paul's idea. These are inspired scriptures. This is God speaking directly to you and me. Here's the Holy Ghost saying, Since we know it's a fact that by one man's offense, death passed upon all men, you sinned in Adam. Much more beyond comparison. In a measure so much greater that it shouldn't be even mentioned together in the same sentence. Much more, infinitely much more, those that receive the abundance of grace, the finished work of Jesus, and the gift of righteousness, the new birth that comes through making Jesus the Lord of your life, shall reign as a king in this life by one Jesus Christ. Now, what can that mean other than God expects you to win every time? Do you in this scripture, Romans five seventeen, do you see any possibility for hit and miss authority? Well, we know the potential is there because we've experienced some of it. But it's certainly not God's intent, is it? It cannot be. It cannot be God's intent. Now I want you to turn back with me to Matthew chapter 8. I want you to see something else. Here Jesus is operating as, as the Son of Man with legal authority on the earth under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. I want you to see the devil's response to this. Let's start in verse 28, Matthew 8:28. And he was come, when he was come to the other side of the country of the Gergesenes, uh, let me just mention the previous verses of where he comes, the wind and the sea. They're on the way to the other side. He says, "Let's go to the other side. He falls asleep in the back part of the ship. A storm of wind arises. The disciples wake him up and say, "Master, don't you care we're about to die?" You don't want to die in your sleep. You've got to be awake for that. Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, verse 27, the men marveled and said, what manner of man is this that even the winds in the sea obey him? What's the answer to that question? What manner of man is he? Well, he's the son of man anointed of God. If, he, if they asked Jesus point blank, who are you to have this kind of power? If he gave him a direct answer, it would be, I'm the son of man, anointed by God. We know that to be true, do we not? He's a man operating in, in his legal authority. Now, let me ask you a question. When he calmed the wind in the seas, did he do it as man's authority? Did he do it with the authority because he was a man? Or did he do it by the anointing of God, the power of God? Well, who was given authority and dominion over the earth? Man or God? So he has to be operating as a man. Now, folks, I'm not suggesting that you go out and try to calm your pool. But what I am suggesting is there is a realm of authority that Jesus operated in That we haven't touched on yet. That doesn't mean we can't touch it. It just means we haven't gotten there. If Jesus is doing something to prove he's the son of God. Why did he not stop right then and say. Now guys do you not have this figured out yet? How much more can I prove that I'm the son of God. If that was his intent. He missed a great opportunity to let him know who he is. If if he was here on the earth like most of the church world thinks he was to prove that he was the son of God. But he just acts like that's normal fare. He says, why are you so fearful, you of little faith? My interpretation of that is Jesus saying, what's the big deal? what's the big deal well they thought it was a big deal they thought they was about to die and these are fishermen these are guys that are used to being on the water there were at least some of them that lost hope why would Jesus say what's the big deal if he's operating as the son of God wouldn't he rather respond well it's a good thing you're with me Good thing somebody in this boat's got some power. But that's not what he says. He says, Why are you so fearful, O ye of little faith? In other words, it seems that he's saying there's nothing to be afraid of. Well, why would there not be anything to be afraid of when they consider their lives to be in danger by the storm? Because man has dominion and authority on the earth. He's just finished teaching in chapter 7 how to hold authority. Okay, back to verse 28. When they got to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them, a herd of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into this herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about this story. And there are very few uh, details that change in the three accounts each time it tells us the same thing that the evil spirits in them in this man uh, Luke's account says it was one guy Matthew says it was two but each time the evil spirit in them cries out and says I know who you are you thou art the son of God folks you need to understand something the devil had no clue the importance of the virgin birth He had no understanding of the legality, the legal right that God set in motion when Jesus was born of a virgin. That legally gave him authority on the earth. God didn't cut any corners. And that's why Jesus makes such a point in John chapter 10 by saying the one that comes to the door legally to be born of a woman. He's the shepherd. Satan's an illegal trespasser. Now why in the world would the evil spirits cry out, we know who you are, you son of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? There seems to be something at the forefront of their mind. What is that? their day of destruction. Now, why do we ascribe such power to the devil and evil spirits when the thing that's first and foremost on their mind is the day that they'll be destroyed? I trust that you're aware of Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 where it tells us about the devil. I think it's Ezekiel 28 where it says when the end comes and our eyes are opened it has to be after we receive our redeemed bodies but when our eyes are opened and we can look on the devil for who he really is and not who he pretends to be or makes himself out to be or deceives us about being it says all of mankind will look on him narrowly with squinted eyes in other words and say is this the one that caused all the trouble Well, folks, if that's the way we're going to look at him then, why don't we look at him that way now? We think of God as being what the Bible says, God is love. And so we focus on God's goodness and God's mercy. And I think that's the only way that a lot of Christians ever see him. But the Bible paints another picture of God, too. Terrible in judgment. Frighteningly so. When he executes judgment. Let me read to you a verse of scripture. A couple of verses of scripture from. Uh, I think it's Isaiah 13. Let me get it here. I had it. Written out. Yeah, it's Isaiah 13. Um, I'm going to start in verse 9. Behold the day of the Lord cometh. Cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. And will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. The terrible meaning those that present themselves as as great and powerful here on the earth. And will lay low the haughtiness of the powerful. And I will make a man more precious than fine gold. Even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore will I shake the heavens and the earth. I'm sorry. Therefore I will shake the heavens. And the earth shall remove out of her place. In the wrath of the Lord of hosts. And in the day of his fierce anger. We don't think of God in those terms. But folks let me tell you something. That's the only way the devil thinks of God at all. That's the way the devil sees God. Now it seems to me. And again you judge this for yourself. I'm still meditating on some of these things. And and working through it myself. But it seems to me. That the church takes the name of Jesus and uses it in an attempt to stop the devil in his tracks and stop him from accomplishing his works. And we speak the name of Jesus timidly without any forethought as to the power, the power of God behind it. But notice what the evil spirits were concerned about when Jesus came in their territory. Have you come to torment us before the time? I believe it's Luke's account that says just a little bit different. Have you come to destroy us before the time? In other words, when they saw Jesus, they saw the destroyer. You are called Christians. The word Christian means Christ like one. I believe. And this is my aim. My goal. I believe we can come to the place. Where we are of understanding. Of who we are in Christ to the degree. That we are Christ like in our dealings with devils. So when the devil sees us, he sees the power of the destroyer in operation. I know that has to be possible because you remember in Acts chapter 19 when the seven sons of Siva, the Jewish priests, had these seven sons who were exorcists. They saw that the uh, evil spirits were being cast out in the name of Jesus And so they took it upon themselves to cast the devil out of somebody. And they said, we adjure you, speaking to the evil spirit, they said, we adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out of him. You remember what the evil spirit responded? Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Now I want you to notice that he put Paul on an even par with Jesus when it came to the exercise of of the name of Jesus. Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Wouldn't it be great for the devil to say, Jesus I know, and Mike I know, but who are you? Or whatever your name is, inserted it right there. See, folks, I'm beginning to see that in the authorities, in the centurion's understanding of authority. He said I'm a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. And when I tell them to do something. They do it or else. And nobody challenges the or else. And I've got somebody over me. And when I'm given an order. I do it or else. And I don't challenge the or else. Let me tell you something folks. There comes a place. We may not be there yet. But we're on our way. There comes a place when we speak to the devil, he won't challenge thee or else. Is this making any sense at all? Well, I'm out of time. Let's pray. We'll quit here and see where the Lord takes us next time. Hallelujah. Father, what a privilege it is to be called by the name of Jesus. We see in the scripture that death passed upon all men because all men sinned in Adam. But even much more, much more, infinitely more. We've been made the righteousness of God because we were in Christ. When the price was paid. Father, I ask you. To give unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Open the eyes of our understanding, Lord, to help us see who we are in Christ and the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. The authority that we have in the name of Jesus. The place that we stand in Christ to break the power of the devil. Reveal to us, Lord, the exceeding greatness of your power that was wrought in Christ at the resurrection. The greatest display and manifestation of your power. That resurrection power is in us. Help us to see it and understand it. Oh, Father. Father. Thank you that you are terrible in judgment, but you are rich in mercy to us. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might understand the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Say this after me, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. You realize, of course, that that's in 1 John and that Jesus, that the Holy Ghost, excuse me, was impressing upon John to write about the greater power in us than evil spirits that are operating in the world. Greater is he that's in us than the evil spirits that are in the world. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, the Bible says. Not going to be already. Oh, I just got... I'm jumping up and down on the inside. Because I believe we're coming to the place where we'll operate in the authority of the name of Jesus. To set the captives free. To heal the blind eyes. And make the lame to walk. God's power hadn't changed. Neither has his purpose. Jesus said we'd do the same and greater works than he did. I believe we're coming to the place where that's going to take place. Amen. Well say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.